0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 12th of March, 2013, and our special guest is Adit Harrell-Caperton. Welcome, Adit.
1: Hello, Steve. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for coming. The picture on the left was a little too fuzzy. I felt like we needed something with some more definition, so I chose the one on the right. I hope that's okay.
1: If you like it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I think it's more important that you feel comfortable with it. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, thanks to Mighty Bell, Manco, and Blackboard Collaborate for their forms of support. We have some great virtual conferences this year. You can look them up at Web2Olabs.com, web 2 labscom the School Leadership Summit is on the 28th of this month. These are fully free events. They're peer practitioner teaching, they're just really a blast. Um, if you're going to be at ISTE, don't miss ISTE unplugged. That's ISTEunplugged.com and our all-day unconference the day before this year called Hack Education. We have a worldwide STEM conference in July, the Future of Libraries conference in October, the Global Education Conference in November. Anyway, lots coming up, web20labs.com. Coming up on this show, Thursday, we have a our first ever Book Club 2.0 meeting on Seymour Papert's Mindstorms. This should really be fun. And this is a great this interview is a great prelude to that. Then next week Jay Cross talks to us about informal learning, Adam Bessey on Germ, which is the global ed reform movement. Uh, Posse Salberg, I think, came up with that term. Michael Fullen keynotes the um, School Leadership Summit, as well as Yong Zhao and Bill Brennan. Um, Matt Hearn talks to us about de schooling, John Hattie on visible learning. Anyway, lots coming up. Hopefully something in there that's of interest to you. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded. Yesterday, we had a fascinating show with Paul Thomas on poverty, uh, specifically poverty in the United States and the corporate takeover of education. Profound, profound book. I know it's expensive, so it's not easy to get a copy of it. Sorry, that's my phone ringing. It's expensive, not easy to get a copy of it, but you... um, it's worth listening to the interview. Please do so. Before that, Chris Mercoliano talked to us about childhood and the ways in which um, fear is stopping us from allowing children to have real learning experiences. Again, another fascinating show. Uh, lots more. All of those up in full, Blackboard Collaborate, recording, and then MP3 versions as well. This is the chance for those of you who are in our live studio audience to let us know where you are listening from. Look to the left of the map, click on the star. It's the second icon down. And then click on the map. Anxious to Stella's in Argentina. I happen to be in New Zealand, which sounds glamorous. And actually, today is glamorous. (laughs) I'm in a very beautiful place. But I will not gloat. I'm working hard. Anyway, feel free to put a note in the chat. Let us know the time, temperature, anything else you'd like us to know about where you are gives us a sense of the scope of the listeners. If you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for taking the time to do so. Heather, I'm outside of Auckland on the island of Waiheke. Thanks to Mighty Bell for support. There is a Mighty Bell room for this session. Mighty Bell is this very cool content and curation space model built by Gina Bianchini. Gina is the co-founder of Ning. Full disclosure is that I do consulting work for Gina, but her projects for education have always been free, and you can use Mighty Bell for free. It's terrific. And I collected a number of Adit's resources there in that Mighty Bell space. You can continue the conversation well past the show. Oh, and look at that. I have the wrong slide. I'll tell you what time does to you. The date? this looks better,
2: doesn't it? You have to remember to turn your mic on.
1: Yes, I remember to turn the mic on. Hi, everyone. It's so nice to see <laughs> out where people are from, and whether it's snowing or sunny or nighttime or daytime. So much fun.
2: It is fun. Where are you right now?
1: I'm in New York City. It's 8 o'clock p.m. after a very full day of work and really delighted to connect with all of you and learn together tonight.
2: Well, hopefully we can make this relaxing for you. Okay, so um, I'm going to ask you to turn your microphone off when you're not talking. You do hear that awful echo. I apologize
0: for that. Um, You and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and you talked about how uh, in the 1990s, and and previously, we've had 21st century types of learning activities. It's just that they were like sandcastles, um, as I remember, that the water can wash over, and then they're gone. And we now have this sort of permanence with tech uh, that is making things unique. Did I understand you correctly about that?
1: Uh-huh. I'm so happy my metaphor is is alive and well. Uh, so far away in that part of the world where you're in, yes, I think we talked about the fact that constructionism that was born in the late 60s, 70s, I joined it in the 80s uh, at the media lab, uh, which was a really interesting time. We envisioned a connected world, a networked world, but we were still working with kids in low-income communities uh, when they each have their own PC, not even a laptop, uh, and that alone was major to, to kind of say that very soon every kid will actually have a PC on their desks in their school. Uh, and they will all be connected to each other, and through modems, we were able to connect kids in Roxbury, Massachusetts, to kids in Costa Rica, or kids in Australia, or kids in Jerusalem, and to demonstrate that, we did an overnight <laughs> delivery of ruger codes from one kid to the other, for them to only realize, oh my God, we have the same name, a Hispanic kid in Roxbury, said about a kid in Costa Rica, and we name our daughters the same way, and um, and, and that was very exciting and they shared recipes that were written in Logo and that was kind of a demonstration that very soon there will be kid-to-kid interaction and they will all learn together very similarly to what we're doing here tonight. But that was unfortunately 30 years ago <laughs> when I joined that community um, and things pretty much stayed uh, in, in in that one-to-one, kid-to-machine, and now we are one-to-one, but also one-to-many, and many-to-one, and I think we're marching into a future of seven billion of us being able to, to teach and to learn and to interact and to create alone and together, which is so exciting.
2: Exciting is one word for it. I sometimes feel
0: overwhelmed by the potential. Um, it, maybe it's a sign of the importance of what was taking place when you were at MIT that so many of those names are sort of so recognizable to those of us who, who are following these developments. So Seymour Papert was there, Nicholas Negroponte. Who else did you interact with, and and what was going on at that time? What did it was it as exciting as I'm imagining?
1: Absolutely. So what was nice is that we were all there together in a new place that was created at MIT to advance the idea that computation would give rise to a new science of expressive media that would be uh, interdisciplinary or as Nicolas Negroponte used to say, anti-disciplinary. And uh, within the Media Lab, there was this very precious group that had a strange name for MIT or technology team and Seymour Papert named it the epistemology and learning group because it was all about studying knowledge, the origin of knowledge, and how we can cultivate certain kinds of knowledge um, in children with technology. And it was about extending the traditional definition of media technology uh, by treating it as expressive media materials, computational materials for advancing learning. And uh, it it was a pretty powerful group um, that had very um, fabulous students. Some of them are still leading their own groups now. Ricky Goldman at NYU, Uri Wilensky at Northwestern, Mitchell Resnick is still at MIT, uh, Carol Storhacher is in North Carolina. Um, I mean, there are so many So many people. Edith Ackerman is still working with MIT Architecture Department and Lego people. Uh, Yasmin Kafai is a professor at Penn. So there are so many, so many people out there. Uh, I can't even mention all of them. And in the faculty, there were these um, genius gurus who really were experimenting with us and in front of our eyes. Uh, Marvin Minsky was thinking about how to make uh, machine learning like children and Seymour was thinking about um, a whole new way for, for children to learn to become cognitive scientists and AI scientists. Nicolas Negroponte was envisioning how the right hand will talk to the left hand via satellite and Royal Cooper was inventing uh, font and interactive interfaces um, and, tap, uh, and typography for um, graphic design and visual interfaces. Uh, Stephen Benton invented the holograms, and we took, you know, and Barry verko and Todd uh, Macazar were looking at music tools for compositions for both composers, musicians, as well as learners, and we took everything uh, and tried to say, okay, let's imagine all of these tools and media as expressive media, not informational media, not instructional media, but expressive, constructive media that will be programmable, will be totally creative and imaginative in the hands of children and not adopt children that have parents, engineers who have it kind of just like that at home, but children who are usually in low-income communities underserved economically, underserved technologically, and we wanted to bring all these media lab goodies and, and systems and, and ways of thinking to kids in, in the real world, and I think that was so um, such a profound influence on me since then. And uh, that's what I'm still doing today, and we'll get to that later.
0: So Doug Rushkoff uh, had a quote in one of the things you sent me. He says, Adit is one of the few people creating interactive media today who understands that the promotion of agency is not a default computer setting, but an ethos that must be embedded into every stage of planning, development, and implementation. To what degree is agency something that's facilitated
2: by these new technologies, and to what degree do you have to work to help make sure that it's a part of them? Well,
1: a lot of my work, again, inspired by Seymour Papre and our team members at the Media Lab, um, was about creating passion for learning and creating learning environments that make people fall in love with learning. And I truly believe that if, if, if you create projects and, and environments and people around you where you can cultivate or um, bring light to, to passion and ideas of people, you can really create self-motivation and agency and, and move forward with your ideas. And there is nothing more pleasing, I think, for humans than learning. Um, there is brain research that even shows that it's, 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 it's the same joy that people have with learning that they have when they eat delicious food or having sex. So I think it's a, it's a really basic, basic joy that humans have when they learn something new, and especially when they're figuring things out, when, 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 it, when it takes time, uh, when it's something that they build, they construct, and they figure out for themselves.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that because uh, the term constructionism is different than constructivism and it's certainly different than instructionism, right? But what role does the computer play in that ability to construct more than just ideas but actual things?
1: So the computer, on one hand, doesn't play any role unless we play it as learners, right? And so it's 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 about us, our hands, our hands-on, our our minds, and how it all works together with, with the right tools. Um, so if if you brought the sandcastle uh, metaphor before, let's let's kind of bring it back. So we all know that you know when when we are with You know, parents and kids playing on the beach together. There are these great moments of learning when you build sandcastle and you can really learn about the ocean and the sand, geography, the tides, the moon. And as you're busy building the sand castles you can learn some principles and spatial cognition and architecture and different kinds of structures that you can do and gravity and what have you. And this is a time where as, as you sit and construct these things, you're, you're, your mind is open, your ears are open. It's, it's a good time as a parent, I know, to actually teach your kids Special lessons and maybe observe the tides, observe the moon as, as you are working on your sandcastle. But then again, a sandcastle is, can be washed by the sea. What's so beautiful about computer systems and certain tools—not not all not computers, not all tools, but certain tools—is that it allows you to document the process of construction. It allows you to save the process of construction of that metaphorical sandcastle. It allows you to link it to all these things that you're learning about the moon, about tides, about the relationship that you have with, with the person near you that is telling you that stories, and and save it and come back to it the next day and bring other friends into that experience a day after and go back to it a year later. And I think that is the, the most precious thing about technology, especially today's technology, when we can all be connected as we build our sandcastles. We can document our process, we can be inspired by each other, we can maybe pull together three castles and build even a bigger one, and we can listen to a friend next to us that is learning about the moon and, and the tides and the ocean and climate change and find it at just the right moment to delve into something that relates to that project and learn.
0: So for those who m- may have had some confusion about this, as I have previously, Um, Constructivism came from Piaget, am I right?
2: Yes,
1: Constructivism is the Piagetian concept. Constructionism was invented a word that was invented by Seymour Papert to build on Piaget but to also add this dimension of one, computational tools in the process of constructivism and the importance of them for developing both concrete and abstract thinking, as well as the social construction of knowledge aspect. And and so he just decided to play on the word to add these two dimensions of uh, situating constructivism of the child as an explorer and as a builder not just the child as a scientist in the more pure possession sense, but the child as a scientist with their own canvas and their own tools, embedded in a culture with other children who are working on similar explorations, discoveries, and projects, constructing alone, constructing together in a social setting with computational tools that Timo Papert believes very strongly can really contribute to the learning process, to the construction process, to the sharing process. And... Here we are in 2013, constructionism 2.0, as I call it. We're finally able to really um, expand on that early concept that Seymour talked about because of social learning networks, which are, by the way, I think, highly underutilized in education today, both in formal education, home education, or school education.
0: There's so much to talk about there. I'm laughing because we have someone who left the room who said she didn't like she couldn't learn just from talking. although I would say that conversation is a form of constructing um and there's a funny uh note in the in the beginning of the constructivism book where Seymour talks about the fact that even in writing a book, you know that is a sort of a form of a one way transmission uh how would you how would you take this moment that we're having the conversation that we 're having and put it within the framework of your ideas and seymour's ideas
1: I'm really sorry that the person left it's not the first time it's happening to me when we are talking about constructionism rather than doing it or dancing it or playing with it or, or building something but I will hope to get that person's information and invite that Person, I don't know if it was a woman or a man and where they were from, uh, invite them to maybe join uh, a learning experience that we do with Global Lawyer today. So, here is, here is what we say. Seymour was very good at saying tools, technology tools and, and, and tech in general is good for both instructionism and constructionism and we're not eliminating instructionism completely. There are moments when it's really fun to get a video, uh, to to go through a tutorial, uh, to be instructed by someone, whether it's your friend, your older brother, your teacher, your parent, or some expert master teacher. Um, so there is something that is very good about using technology and we all know that. The problem is that people really forget about how we really learn best, you know, we learn um, you know, news journalists learn about content by writing a news piece about it. Television producers learn about science by producing a science documentary. We can learn a lot about climate change by producing a simulation about climate change and learn chemistry by creating a game to teach chemistry. So the idea that you make something and you try to even teach something in a game in a simulation or in an interactive artifact that's a great way to learn is a key idea in my work and what I believe that these constructionist activities are the ones that then allow us to go to instructional moments with technology or without technology that are offline or online and really absorb it very fast. So as I'm Trying to build a game to teach about fractions, or as I'm trying to really figure out how to program uh, a scorekeeper or a timer into a game to teach someone about uh, recycling and the environment, there is just the right moment to go to look for the best tutorial and to be instructed for three minutes, five minutes, or an hour, and then apply it to my project, but what drives my instructionist learning is my constructionist learning. And I think in that sense, we are putting everything upside down. And most people, most schools, even universities, higher education, they will usually say, okay, we're going to cover all these chapters in a textbook. We're going to hear all these lectures. And then at the end, we're going to give you a project, and that project is usually a week or three weeks or one month in a good case. But it's very rare to find learning environments that say, this is the project for the year. It's an hour or two every day. It's going to take us 150 hours. We're going to build this game or this simulation to teach about climate change or to, uh, you know, help kids understand odd and even (laughs) numbers, you know, whatever it is. We're just going to delve in and work on this alone or in a team. And then as we work on our project, here are all the branching tutorials and instructional videos and books that we can read as we move along our project. But the project is driving it. And it's not a two-week project. It's a one-year project. And I think that's the way real life is. That's the way we all work. I'm sure most of the people are in this conversation today. That's the way we, we study new topics as scientists. That's the way um, we, we run businesses. That's the way we start a startup. And so why not engage kids in that type of learning K-12?
0: Here you are at MIT. You have this understanding of, um, this growing understanding of uh, learning by doing and constructionism. And you have this vision of devices that will soon be in people's pockets.
2: What drove you to leave MIT? Well, um, I I saw Mosaic in 1993
1: and I started thinking about how cool it would be to take that browser and create a media map for kids on the net. I all of a sudden realized that we've been working so hard with Seymour and his group of fabulous people in one school just putting 250 computers and trying to transform the school where every kid used the computer every day, the whole day, but it was just one model school. So it was about creating a vision for the future through one school, but I realized that there is a lot that we can do by reaching all kids directly. So the idea of reaching kids directly through browsers, not through the school, not through the home, through their CD-ROMs, which was the period in the late, 80s, early 90s, and things that we did with CD-ROM. that was also very exciting. But all of a sudden, every kid in the world, I can be in Mumbai, in India, or in Bronx, in New York, or in Tel Aviv, or in South Africa, or in Brazil, or in Australia, or New Zealand. And I can be on Monday afternoon experiencing the same activity, connecting to other kids just by being on a browser. That idea blew my mind. And I I just said, okay. Uh, And um, I think uh, the Media Lab wasn't really catching on to this so fast. And I decided to depart and uh, start a company. And uh, I named it Mama Media. MamaMedia.com was probably the first uh, website. That's how we called it back then, a website, although we called it a community, a community for kids and their parents. So We called it Mama Media because it was media for kids to create their own media, and it was a media lab for kids on the net, and it was the place for kids to come from a very young age. We decided to start it at age four or five and, and really catch them when they're 13 or under and teach them how the internet is not just, back then, it was like Yahoo with gray screens and blue links, if you remember, 94, 95, and we decided, no, 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 this is not about links and information, and everybody talked about information, we're going to create a creative space where kids can create stories and, and send each other their stories and visit each other creations of cartoons and animations, and even when they collect links, the links will have representations, and maramigit.com was such a fabulous place, um, and it was very hard to create it, to really don't take cd arms and just be browser-based. Remember, it was Netscape 1.0, i.e. didn't even launch. It was uh, Java 1.0. <laughs> it was really hard. But we made it, and it was a very exciting thing to, to be this company that drove constructionism for kids in the early age of Internet
2: 1.0. And it was really, it was successful.
0: really successful. How did it? Uh, how did you evolve from there to Worldwide Workshop?
1: Well, at one point, um, it does something funny. It says, "Waiting for Web tour. Are you going on the web?" Now you are. Okay,
2: cool. So
1: um, at one point we realized that it's not about us publishing Mama Media activities and being a publisher any longer, but rather it you know, uh, Facebook started, right? LinkedIn started. We start participating in all these social media tools. Amazon had some social tools for connecting people to books and people to people through books. And, again, I got so excited. I said, okay, so the world is ready for constructionism 2.0. Forget about MamaMedia.com. It's time to teach all kids to make (laughs) MamaMedia. So we just said, okay, it's time for kids. In between, I had a consulting firm. So when the Internet bubble burst and I, I kind of, like, conserved Mama Media as a normal area, I started the Mama Media, I had this interim career, the Mama Media Consulting Group was helping companies come online and create very exciting gamification of websites, and we built games and simulations and help people build learning environments that was very playful and very exciting, and we were the people from Mama Media helping other people you know, sharing our know-how. And then I said, okay, we love creating games. We're learning so much about science and technology and different kinds of school topics through making games. Let's teach kids how to make games and really bring constructionism alive again. And in a way for me that was totally retro because I came back to my children designers book. I start reading it again. So I left MIT Media Lab, which was academia, and I started a highly consumer brand, the first brand for kids on the net, won many awards, and established this very special relationship with distribution channels and advertising and and talked to all these kids, you know, millions of kids from 36 countries on Namamedia.com. But then I said, Well, I don't think I'm reaching the the low-income kids because I'm only talking to kids that have computers in their schools or computers in their homes, but there are a lot of kids out there that, just like the kids that I studied when I was at MIT when I wrote my book Children Designers, and I learned so much about how kids can learn mathematics and science and programming through instructional software design. When they were building software and games to teach mathematics, Yasmin Kafai was my student, my research assistant, and then, of course, wrote her dissertation, Mind and Play. Um, she then continued that work, too, and there were a lot of other people out of the media lab that kind of started looking at ways in which we can teach kids programming and teach kids how to build their own games. Mitchell Resnick, um, uh, very much following Mama Media, did scratch. We had a thing about Mama Media on uh, Mama Media called BotBlocks, which was the first programming language for kids. Uh, that was drag-and-drop object-oriented programming that was extremely successful uh, that we launched in 99, 2000 And so there were a lot of things that were emerging, and I say, okay, but I want to reach these low-income kids and and in, in schools that are failing and infuse them with their Construction is 2.0 when they can learn on the network but with industry-standard tools. I really want them to learn how to program in Java, how to program in Flash Action Script, how to really do JavaScript, how to build all these games and all these simulations and all these apps on a social learning network like Facebook. So it's going to be uh, a Facebook with purpose. I called it the good Facebook in the early days when I was running around raising money again. I said, this is going to be the good Facebook. People are not just going to talk about or, or the good MySpace, if you remember that. Uh, it's, I'm not just going to talk about music and celebrities and and share you know um uh, photos their their app will be instead of sharing photos they will share games and apps that they're writing and we need to therefore create a learning environment when they can upload the process of learning remember the sand castles right so they we will create we will build a Uh, a learning, a social learning network, when every kid and every team can share every single research and every single link, as well as everything they program, every piece of code, every paper prototype they create, every imagery that they collect or animate by themselves using the tools that they were using with industry standard tools. So that was early. That was 2006. That was very early. I think I'm talking today, and a lot of people understand the gamification and STEM and and, and coding and how important it is, but when we said that in 2005, 2006, when I started this worldwide workshop, hence the name, Worldwide Workshop, everybody in a workshop, hands on, doing social media technology for learning and thinking about making games and simulations for science, uh, games about human rights, games about bullying games about mathematics, that was very exciting and Seymour was very excited about that, especially about how can kids learn mathematics through making games for mathematics. Unfortunately in 2006, he got hit by a motorcycle in Vietnam just after he gave a seminal talk to mathematicians in Hanoi and and since then... um, he, we unfortunately lost him, but he was with me when we started the Worldwide Workshop as a chief advisor and very excited about the possibility of even launching, you know, the Seymour 2.0 of everything is open. Um, I have an anecdote here, actually, that I would like to share. So just before he flew to Vietnam, I said, Seymour, why don't you publish on our network your, your speech? You know, just give us your speech and everybody in the conference can start commenting on it. Uh, Won't it be fun that they will already start the conversation and maybe upload some examples for the things you're going to talk about? The interesting thing is that he was not ready for that, not only because he was Seymour and his stuff was not ready probably two minutes before he went on stage, but also because he wasn't ready to share yet. Before he gave the talk, he wasn't yet ready to share his stuff. And that was a really interesting thing. Even Seymour Papert was not yet fully ready in December 2006 for Constructionism 2.0, as excited as he was about kids creating together over a network. Um, and, 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 that, and that was really funny. But as a result, uh, I did not have his talk. I wish I did, because uh, that could have been fabulous. Because literally the day after he gave this talk, he, he, he had this horrible accident. And it's all described in Wikipedia, and you can read about that.
0: I'm glad you told that story. Um, I'm going to take us now to the Global Aurea site. And and when did this start?
1: So 2006, Global Aurea started, and we had a vision of being uh, a global network for learning where students can develop digital literacy, science, technology, engineering, design, mathematical and computing knowledge, and also practice what we call digital citizenship or global citizenship. I've been visiting schools and I realized that kids, most kids, millions of kids, have no idea how to participate, not even on on, on Facebook. And they didn't know how to go, get an email, establish an account, and start blogging. They have no clue that they can actually write an article for Wikipedia. They didn't know that MediaWiki software is available for them to build their own wikis. Uh, the, the, the concept that they can now be creators of the network of the learning environment as well as of the, the artifacts that they create in that learning environment was so far away. Um, so if you scroll down a little bit, Steve, you can see the iterative learning cycle uh, that we were uh, we were trying to promote. It's on the middle of the screen. The publish, play, prototype, close program. To,
0: each of you will have to do that on your own. There's a
2: scrolling Oh, oh
1: I, I have control. That's so nice. I didn't realize I have control. How funny! Um, I usually grab control. Here we go. So, <laughs> so that 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 is the way we 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 simplified it. But we really wanted everyone to learn how to participate. How to participate actively and thoughtfully, not just by playing other kids' games, but also by learning how to do their own research, do design documents, planning, how to do paper prototypes, video prototypes, demos, how to code and program and publish, and go through that cycle again and again and again uh, in order to, um, to, to benefit their own learning, as well as do something good for their community. So here is our mission, uh, to develop digital learning for mastering knowledge and skills that youth need to succeed in school, enjoy and love learning, succeed in college, and get this millions of jobs that are out there in the global innovation economy. We also really realized that educators need to be learners, that we have to empower the educators. So we decided not to build a virtual only consumer based type of network, but to empower educators with their own network and empower the principals, the school systems, and the superintendents by training them to facilitate the youth in engaging in that kind of learning and turn all these classrooms into like design studios that can motivate the students and create this agency to work harder and dig deeper and connect to both each other content and uh, and ideas. So what you see here um, there are a lot of um imagery from kids' games and and some photos of students and teachers and work. I encourage you to watch we have 55 mini documentaries of testimonials from principals students and educators uh and there is um really cool um, um videos here that you can watch probably about what is laoria and um I don't know, Steve, if you want us to watch this, but I can stop it for now. You can tell me if you do. And you can also uh, go down here and really take the tour and, and get the slides and download all the information uh, that you can do on your own and uh, express your interest. We'll send you more
0: information. And we have
1: a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of information embedded on this
0: website. I'm really glad you brought up the teachers. So, how have you solved the dilemma of training teachers to give students agency? Don't you have to give the teachers some form of agency as well?
1: Absolutely. So, you see, we have teachers from very diverse schools, right? We have teachers from New York, from rural West Virginia, from Texas, East Austin, and Manor School District, and from San Jose, California, there was just a fabulous actually a very sad article on Huffington Post about how Silicon Valley poverty is often ignored by the tech hub's elite. I commented on that on Twitter. You can see that. Uh, we also see rural West Virginia, a state that is so underconnected, with no bandwidth. We see schools uh, here in New York and in, in Austin, Texas, that are just not connected. So how can we expect teachers uh, to even experience the kind of learning experiences that you would like to provide, kids neither the teachers nor the students even have been with them at home very often to 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 experience these things that all of us are not doing <laughs> in this seminar. Um, focusing on teachers is very important in the constructionist methodology, and people sometimes miss the point; they don't understand that. While we're empowering students, and it's what we call child-centered learning, student-driven learning, uh, self-motivated learning, learning by themselves. You will hear people in my community talk a lot about that. But it's never without empowering teachers through training. And the training used to take teachers through the same type of learning. And very much in the tradition of constructionism, we have workshops. Every first-year teacher does a three-day workshop with us in the summer and then a two-day workshop with us the second year, and then they move into a mentor's workshop if they want to move to be mentors. And we very much believe that teachers have to come together hands-on, go through the curriculum, and really be a student. Forget about being a teacher that is very much in the tradition of Seymour Packard and the Epistemology and Learning Group at the Media Lab and, get and delve into this dirty learning hands-on, dirty learning, get lost, figuring it out, get stuck, try to solve things together and experience the empowerment that it gives the teacher to then be able to come to the classroom just a baby step ahead of the student and be able to do these four modes of learning. Uh, there, There is these four modes of learning that I really love to talk about, which is learning through design, learning through construction, peer-to-peer learning, which is students learning together whether you are at the same level or not, Co-learning of students and teachers together, that's mode number three, and then expert guided learning on demand. And the expert can be in the classroom, the teacher or the teachers just need to be empowered by other experts on the network, which is so fabulously available in Social Learning Network Book
2: 2.0. Okay, so
0: learning through design okay, and construction, so. peer learning, co-learning, and expert guidance. Did we get those four right?
1: Learning through design
2: peer to peer learning, co learning and expert guided learning on demand. So that's the instructionist, right? And what we say
1: that all these four modes should happen all at the same time. You don't move from the instructional. We we our mode number 4 is usually mode number 1, right? We you, you don't move from the instructional to the to the co-learning, to the peer-to-peer, to to the design. You start with the design. You have to have an object. You have to have an objective. You have to have a project that you're creating. And through that, you engage with peers that in your classroom, in your school, or on the network. And you have to learn how to do it smartly. You have to learn how to post a blog that get comments, how to post a question that people can answer, how to go to your friends and ask them for help. You have to learn how to go to a friend in the classroom and how to go to a friend on the network. And the co-learning is something the teachers usually have to learn on one hand because for many of them it's hard to do co-learning, and this is something that everybody in this space is talking about. But also students need to learn with their teachers and be patient about that. And then everybody needs to know that there is, uh, there are resources, there are tutorials, there are different kinds of texts and resources out there, and master teachers available to give you a 10-minute session or a one-hour lecture, or maybe overnight, you just submit your design, you submit your game, and we have something called expert feedback system. When game designers and programmers, teachers say, oh, this team is looking for feedback. I can't even give them feedback about their code because I don't know how to code, or I could never engineer a game like that. Can you please provide to people to give them badges and to give them feedback about their creation? And that is so amazing because the teacher realizes that their students are ready. That's a very important role for a teacher to play. And they submit the students to an expert who can overnight volunteer to look at the students' work. And the teachers can then learn from the feedback that the expert provided. But the teachers can also guide students to a tutorial a tutorial that we provide or a tutorial somewhere else, or they can call the history teacher to teach them about, <coughs> sorry, some topic in science or World War II because uh, that teacher can really help them on the content of the game.
2: So we've talked a lot about on,
0: on this show about the, uh, the way in which sort of deeper narratives around learning often Um, stay in the shadows. They're they're implemented by a few people in different places, but it's very hard to have sort of a larger collective movement around more thoughtful narratives on learning. Somehow you've cracked that code a little. Can you tell us a little bit about how how extensively you've you've been able to get reach
2: and, and what you think you've done to be able to do that? And your mic's off there. Can you please repeat, to be able to do
0: what? Well, you've done a good job of uh, getting broad participation. You're in many states with thousands of students. Maybe you could tell us a little bit
2: about that skills and also how you've been able to do that. We lost your mic again. Maybe you're coughing. Adid, are you still there?
1: I'm going to start again. I'm sorry, my mic was off. So we are a small nonprofit with a big ambition, and we started with a very small uh, group of teachers, 80 students, six teachers in West Virginia. We responded to an RFP of the then First Lady of West Virginia, Dale Manchin, uh, who's, who's a fabulous educator herself, and she decided that she wants to to, to infuse innovation beyond what her Department of Education did at the time back in 2006, 2007. And, and then all of a sudden we had a demo running and you know, it's, 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 all, it's about always playing in beta. Uh, we listened to our teachers. Our platform got bigger and better. Our course curriculum got better and deeper and broader. And as we were teaching our teachers, our teachers taught us and as we were, um, cultivating innovation among our students. Our students told us what works and what doesn't. And slowly, slowly, we got to grow to uh, 50 schools in West Virginia in like three years. And then people start hearing about us. So um, a funder that we applied to Common fund West Virginia, AMD, said, you know what? We are helping this amazing organization, Southwest Key, which is the largest Hispanic nonprofit in the nation, run by Dr. Sanchez. Um, They're starting a new charter school. Will you come and help them be kind of their charter for STEM and computing? And so we will fund that. So we got into Austin, and then other schools in Austin heard about it. And they say, oh, we're a public school, but we can do what that charter school is doing. So that's an amazing, by the way. For me, that's the best um, use of charter schools is that they can inspire the public school systems, right? They can do the ideal. In that charter school, we are uh, in EA Prep. We are now in the fourth year. We started with 6th graders, 100 students. There are 700 students from 6th to the ninth grade. And every kid in that school does global lawyer, just like they do English, language, art, math, or science. One hour a day, every day of their life, the whole seven years of the school. So that's very exciting. I just saw these kids last week week and visited them. And one class, for example, uh, the 8th graders, They were sitting in teams when I visited them. Each of them picked up a nonprofit. They're working, they're they're like, the nonprofit is their client, and they're working for them to develop a game for their site. One team was about homelessness. Another one about immigration. Another team was about nutrition. Another team was about child abuse. And another one was uh, abuse of animals. It was unbelievable. And another group was doing games about civics or science. So it was pretty amazing. Now we have Skovin Maynard and then another funder who funded us in West Virginia, Knight Foundation, one day told us, you know, we really would like to infuse connectivity and technological fluency and digital engagement of a community, community transformation in San Jose at the heart of Silicon Valley. Can we take you to San Jose? Can you can you go and talk to some principals there? And if you'll find some interest, uh, we will fund it. And so we got such high interest. It was pretty amazing. And we started in some middle schools. Uh, most of them are 70 or 80% or 90% Hispanic, Latino population. Uh, and once again, many of the kids, when they start with us, um, they don't know English very well. They don't know Spanish very well. And school teaches them both. And then we also... Get them to learn a computer language and technological fluency and digital citizenship, which is also the language of the future. And then the young leadership, uh, the young women leadership schools in New York uh, heard about us, and they decided that they want to try. That's a high school network of high schools for girls, very diverse, 40% Hispanic, but the other 60% can be. Uh, from different uh, uh, countries in from Egypt from Pakistan uh, there are African American girls and there are girls uh, you know from, from different places in, in, in South Asia very interesting group of girls I was just visiting them today and some of the girls are building games that are about recycling some of them are about booing some of them are about becoming a Broadway actress <laughs> very very Interesting. I and mean, in the class next door, the Spanish teacher is using Global Roya to teach Spanish. So it's her Spanish class with all these high school girls, and they are creating games to teach other kids Spanish, and through that, they are improving their own Spanish language and skills.
2: You- so it's word of mouth
1: and a lot of craziness.
2: So I, I'm going to make a
0: comparison, but you may shoot it down. But as I was reading about Global Aurea, I kept thinking about fan fiction and the process by which now the Internet has enabled youth to write, get feedback. I thought about things like um, Instagram, where they can take photos and get feedback. Are these part of
2: the same story, or is there something more that the game design brings that the others don't? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think it's definitely cousin
1: philosophies of learning. So, if we look, all I can ask you is to look at um, to look at this game, right? And to look at, at this game, you know, a lot of people are teaching kids bullying, right? And kids can write essays about bullying, but this group actually taking that topic and they create an interactive game that I invite you all to play after after this session. Um, this is this is another game that was created, addition men, uh by kids from Sandy River Middle School. Sandy River Middle School is in McDowell County, which is the southernmost part in West Virginia, one of the if not the poorest county in our nation. And they did this game both in English and in Spanish. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, I think the fact that there is opportunities for kids to also blog and to get feedback about their games, that's fantastic. But I think that um, here is Elemental Elegance, and that's a game, you can hear the sound of that. uh, that's a game that was created um, by high school students. Uh, to, to teach about chemistry. So there's a chemistry teacher that decided to do this, you know, this thing. Um, that was a, an important topic also, remember, the, the, the Gold Coast uh, Rescue, and this was created by Yvonne, who is one of our team members, and she just wanted to demonstrate to teachers in one of our workshops, again, she was building. And so we have games by teachers, games by students, games by team members of RoboLauria. And it was a really important thing for her to demonstrate certain uh, ideas in programming and slash action scripts and layering and animations. And she just decided to create a game during the workshop and posted it here.
0: If you have a question for D, please feel free to put it in the chat or you can raise your virtual hand. Uh, we did get a question earlier, um, but it's fairly specific, but the question was, do you get into issues when students design games and use sexist or inappropriate terminology? For example, in this one game he's looking
2: at, the character refers to my broad being attacked. So Adit, you just turned your mic off. It had been on still, so be sure to turn it back on.
1: Hi, Steve. Which which game did you mention? I'm
0: sorry. Mentioned the game and the questions. Well, I don't know which one it was. But but what do you do when students do something that you might think isn't appropriate?
2: Great
1: question. So first of all, we have we have a whole unit that they learn about participation guidelines. When we provide with some basic ten principles of participation that has to do with how you critique games. How do you give constructive criticism? How do you post comments on somebody else's blog? The blogs are like the designer's notebooks. And then there is a unit that was developed by one of our um, one of our team members, Yasmin Safi, who's uh, very sensitive to issues related to human rights and proper. Um, all the isms of, of sorts in terms of sexism and religiousism and <laughs> you name it ageism. Uh, and she really had a whole workshop with our teachers uh, because as students were creating certain games they did often touched on some things that we didn't like to see. Like we had kids for example uh, submitting a game to one of our Globys Award uh, design competitions where the game was about, I think, throwing immigrants out of, you know, Texas or something. And so we had to really, in a very special way, they had to discuss it with the teachers and say the game was actually programmed beautifully, the art was great, the coding was very sophisticated, the team did a great job on the, th- on the teamwork, but we cannot really uh, accept this topic and content and it's a great opportunity for you to discuss it with the students in your classroom and, and see and they need to understand why this is really not appropriate. Uh, we had the same thing about characters that maybe were, uh, um, you know, had some implications related to obesity or being black or whatever. So there are issues and uh, we are encouraging all the kids to only work on educational games, that's why this project can happen in school. And we are also encouraging all of them in the participation guidelines to decide themselves for their community the do's and the don'ts in a very active way, and they vote for it, and and then they have to kind of comply.
0: We have just a couple minutes left. We do always finish on time as a courtesy to our presenters and knowing you're on the East Coast, that's even more important. Um tell me about media literacy how it's different from digital literacy and and how you address both of them
2: So
1: Most people think digital literacy is about being able to use your iPhone or your, you know, Facebook or, you know, going to Google and and, and putting, like, some search keyword and finding something. And we think that's all great. We see um, six literacies. We call them, we wanted to name them in a special way. We call them contemporary learning abilities or contemporary learning literacies. And we put at the top, as you can imagine, the ability to invent, the ability to come up with a big idea or a big question and take it all the way from an idea or a question to research, prototyping, coding, and a final product. And that ability is, to my mind, including coding, coding, design, and engineering is the number one literacy for the world right now, for everyone, it's the new writing, if you ask me. Number two is the ability to do that in a group, on a team. So to be able to use group software and online networks to form a team, to create a schedule, to divide responsibilities, and to go on that project together in a way that is collaborative, harmonious, and divide responsibilities. So the ability to do innovation, literacy number one to teamwork. The third one is your ability to not just consume media but also publish media and your ability to really publish it properly in proper ways with annotations and, and get people to understand what your digital artifact is all about. When I presented the game gallery before, it is all taken from the kids' pages with their descriptions and their... Um, Interactive brochures that they did around their games of what the games are teaching, what the goals of the games, what the students will learn from it, who did what on the team, credits, etc. So these are three very high-level or deep literacies that when we say digital literacy, this is what we mean, and we therefore named it CLA's Contemporary Learning Abilities. There is also the other number four, five, and six. So. Number four is the ability to um, connect to information on the net. Number five is the ability to do search and the ability to really find what you need. And number six is to also have some sense of uh, which website or which game or or, or, or which link is good and have a critical analysis of of the information, the resources and the tools and what's good for what uh, and and be very good at that,
2: developing uh, fluency with that. Well done for a short period of time. <laughs> Indeed, thank you so much. This has really been terrific.
0: The recording of the show will go up uh, later today, uh, both in the full version and in the MP3 form. If you're in the audience and want to capture the chat, you can do so right now by going up to File, Save, Chat. You can also do that in the recording, the full Blackboard Collaborate recording. Thanks, Adit. Thanks so much
2: for being here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, and I really enjoyed your questions, and I look forward to hearing the recording myself.
0: Can't wait to, to do something more with you in the future. Coming up on the Future of Education Thursday is our first Book Club 2.0 meeting on Seymour Peppert's Mindstorms. Thanks to those of you who are here. Thanks
2: to those of you who are listening to the recording, and thanks, Adit, so much for being here. Take care, everybody. Bye now.